This program is intended for mature audiences only. Altitude adjustment may contain language, images, or other content that some may find offensive. Your discretion is advised. Welcome to Altitude Adjustment. Jeff Zucker, or Zucker, depending on how you pronounce it, the guy who just got fired, he's responsible for Trump. In 2015, Trump would call in CNN. They put him on the air immediately. Wow. Okay. So I got upset. My anger is building. I see what's happening in the United States. 20, 20, 2017 is the... Um, in Charlottesville, the neo-Nazi rally. Uh, then th that upset me. That's when Trump said, oh, there's good people on both sides. Yeah, there's good Nazis and there's, well, okay. okay. So, so then all of a sudden, they start killing Jews in a synagogue, especially some Jews who survived the Holocaust. Wow. Now, I, uh, I'm Jewish. I'm not a religious Jew by any means. I'm a cultural Jew. But uh, the Holocaust is kind of an upsetting thing for me. Uh, and uh, the fact that this Trump-inspired lunatic went into the synagogue and started killing Jews upset me so much that I said, like the great uh, TV, like the great movie Network about TV, where the broadcaster said, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. So when I saw that those Jews were killed, I said, I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm going to make a film about anti-Semitism. So yeah. who, was, who was the film targeted towards? Who, who was it aimed at? Well, here's the challenge. People initially, most of the people who are seeing the film come from Facebook and people know me on Facebook. And when you're on Facebook, you're kind of in a, in a locked in community, hmm. uh, you know, because of my jazz stuff on Facebook, I have a, a pretty large audience there. And I would say most people share my political perspective, which is kind of like I, I'm a human rights activist. I'm against everything that Trump and all those people are doing right now. So kind of everyone under that umbrella is part of my community. And of course, they're going to react uh, positively towards the film and, and, and learn something from it. But they're not the people I really want to reach. I want to reach young people because I think I still have a chance to reach some young people. I mean, junior high school, high school, college, who haven't kind of made up their minds yet. Possibility of uh, explaining to them what this hateful thing is called anti-Semitism, what causes it, what we can do about it. But in terms of the... Uh, tens of millions of people who are racists and anti-Semites and white supremacists, they're not going to see the film. You know, even if they saw it, they think it was a pack of lies. So my real goal with the film is to reach as many young people as possible. Did you have a question, Warren? Yeah, well, you know, um, as far as reaching young people, they're trying to uh, also limit that, too, with all this CRT crap. But what I wanted to say was that that Tree of Light incident i don't remember them associating that with trump trump did i miss the news that i did i go to sleep on that the shooter was an avid trump supporter who took trump's lead in terms of being against immigrants mm -hmm. and jumped on this organization in pittsburgh some of which is run by jews to help immigrants who are coming to this country was it covered that way though i mean it, they made it sound like know, you know some lone gunman, you know? Yeah. Here's the deal. Here's the funny part about it. This guy has never even been to trial yet. Wow. He's been, His lawyers have been able to delay this thing. That was in 2018. This is 2022. It's like three and a half years later. Is he out or is he behind bars? No, 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 no. He's behind bars. He's, he oh. is a, I mean, he's a problem, uh, you know, problem-filled individual. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Wow. So let me take That's a moment. A go ahead. No. Go no. Ahead. Uh, what were you gonna say? I was gonna I was gonna uh, show a quick clip uh, from the documentary, and then we'll go on continue with the conversation. Uh, is that okay? 
Perfect. Thank you. Because of one man's anti-Semitism, immigration to America for Jews trying to escape Hitler's brutal reign of terror simply wasn't an option. The central mystery regarding FDR's immigration policy is this. Immigration was regulated by a quota system which set a cap on the number of people who could come to the U.S. in any given year from each country. The maximum from Germany during the 30s and 40s was about 27,000. And yet in 11 of FDR's 12 years in office, that quota was not filled. In most of those years, it was less than 25% filled. So the Roosevelt administration was deliberately suppressing immigration far below the limits that the law already allowed. That leads scholars to naturally look at what motivations might have driven such a policy. Uh, and in the case of FDR, the fact that uh, he privately expressed um, uh, great uh, suspicion about Jewish immigrants in, in particular and about Jews in general leads to the conclusion that one of the reasons that his administration suppressed refugee immigration was because he personally did not want a large number of foreign Jews in the United States. This material is being presented okay. via copyright disclaimer. This program is intended for mature audiences only. All right. Altitude adjustment. All righty. Here we go. Hit the, hit the wrong okay. buttons. Um, so it started. Uh, so first, oh, one of the things I did want to mention was yesterday, yesterday our show yesterday was supposedly um, Power Partners. And I lost internet connection yesterday, so we weren't able to stream. So that show will be moved to another day. Um, and so, I, you know, hopefully nothing will happen. Uh, I'm just glad we've got our inch, uh, uh, in my, I've got my internet service back today so we can at least stream today. So anyway, that, that clip, uh, um, we couldn't hear it, it here, but the clip was about, and, and I'm sure, uh, uh, Brett would know once he heard some some of the audio, but it was uh, Brett had a uh, for those people who are listening to the audio version and not being watching the video, the clip was about uh, um, anti-Semite. Uh, what was it? The anti-Semite uh, Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. That's what it was, and uh, it was Roosevelt. Uh, that that some of the some of his actions were deemed uh, anti semitic anti-Semitic. Um, and one of the things that that for me is a is a big question is we have a difficulty having conversations in America. So if you say something that triggers people, let's take let's take Whoopi. So Whoopi made a statement. Now, people disagreed with her. And rather than saying, I disagree with you, um, this is how I see it, and here's where you may be, here's where you and I differ, and you have an opportunity, you know, to give uh, Whoopi an opportunity to look at what they had to say and then decide if what she thinks is right is still right. And that's, that's a part of having a conversation. Every kind of vileness was directed towards her. It was, it was horrible. How do we, or, or is it possible to have conversations about subjects that are sensitive so that we can come to a, 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 a an understanding? So you appealing to children or you appealing to younger people is about building a relationship down the road so that we have a common information to work from so that we have understandings of each other. That doesn't mean we have to agree. It's just, uh, you know, gives us an opportunity to try to work together. You know, do you, and I know you've said before on multiple occasions, you're not real optimistic, but, um, but we do need to at least be able to, find a common way to talk. 
And that was, you know, did you find Whoopi's comments anti-Semitic? Not really. Um, you know, people are very quick to jump on uh, people in the spotlight, so to speak, uh, for, you know, interpreting what they have to say. Uh, I, you know, Whoopi, Whoopi Goldberg is not an anti-Semitic woman. It's ridiculous. Uh, she may have misstated what she was trying to say. I don't know. I didn't follow it that closely. But, uh, you know, we're at this time in our culture, we're so ready to jump on someone if we think they're not speaking the truth as we want to hear it. When in fact, the truth means different things to different people. One of the things that, that uh, until the past 20 or 30 years, that kind of held this country together in some ways was that people could speak their mind if you disagreed with them, if you disagree with their opinion, you didn't try to kill them. Now you disagree with someone, there's people that want to kill you. I mean, that's the reality of how fevered the uh, feverish pitch of the ang feverish pitch of the anger in this country because of everything that's happening. And sadly, uh, social media and uh, media in general thrives on controversy. Ratings are stronger for something bad that happens instead of something good. So the corporate entities that control the media and social media, for them to like foster controversy is one of their goals because they're trying to bring in more people. They want more, they want people, more, more, more time on Facebook, more time on TV. You, you want controversy? You want the lowest common denominator? That's what we're going to give you. And that's what we've got now in this country, the lowest common denominator. Right, right. Yeah. So, so, so one of the things, and, and, and I, I would like to see us be able to have conversations. Um, and, and that's what I've tried to do here is that we can have a conversation and if you disagree with someone, you, you know, be able to explain your position to disagree. So in doing uh, a little research, a little work for this show, I went out and, and listened to a few people, um, you know, on the internet. Um, so, so in trying not to be inflammatory, the difficulty I find is I, I see, I listen to some people's views and it's, it, it appears to me that, that they don't realize what they're saying. So I had one guy, um, decided that, that Whoopi's uh, comments were, um, uh, anti-Semitic. And then, and then the, the, he went on to talking about, because um, he was from British, and he was, and everything that he that he was saying supported what Whoopi was saying, and yet he he was saying Whoopi was anti-Semitic, and yet he was not. So, do you find in so I'm guessing that the people that that you interact with on a regular basis are probably going to be more self-aware. But do you find that um, conversations that you have that a lot of people aren't really self-aware when it comes to the comments that they make and the things that they believe surrounding anti-Semitism. Well, I have a dog that I take to the dog park every day. Okay. And at the dog park, I meet people, cross-section of people uh, who don't share the same perspective or views that I have. Um, these people, uh, some of them are very, very set in what they believe, and they cannot 
it's impossible to try to communicate with them because they're so fixed and so rigid. They're not open to listening to an idea that, you know, something mm -hmm. maybe, what about this side of it? The other people who disagree with me, they're a little bit more open-minded, but it's that, it's that percentage of people who just don't want to hear about it. Uh, some of them are anti-vaxxers. Uh, some of them are probably white supremacists. Some of them are probably anti-Semites, but they certainly don't voice that to me. But certainly uh, a number of them are anti-vaxxers. And uh, that's just what they believe. They strongly believe that. And they cannot look outside of that world to accept maybe they're wrong. Maybe the possibility exists that you're wrong, but they don't want to hear about it. So those types of people, they they choke, they make communication very difficult. But there still are other people who who have an opposing point of view who are willing to listen. So I don't want to generalize and say everybody who disagrees with me is full of shit because only some of them are. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and, and we and we do have to take that on a case by case basis to be fair. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. You know, I, I really don't like this pigeonholing. You know, we're going to talk a little bit later about jazz, yes. which is my first love, one of my loves. And like uh, one of the ways that corporate America has tried to market this music is to give it certain labels to pigeonhole it. You know, like mm -hmm. he's a blues artist or uh he, he plays straight ahead or he plays off on, you know, these different things, Can't, categorizing it. And that carries over into people. We like, well, he thinks this, he thinks that. So therefore, he's no good or she's, you know, whatever. We can't do that. We're individuals. We're complex. We have to deal with people on a one-to-one -one basis. I agree with that. I do. So was this your first foray into a documentary that wasn't centered around music? Yes. Well, no, no, no. I take that back. It was the first feature-length documentary. Since I moved to Tucson 20 years ago, I kind of got involved in a lot of the border issues and immigration things. So I did some shorter films around that. Um, I was teaching documentary filmmaking at a community college here. And several years ago, there was a a controversy regarding DACA students. These were the students who under the Obama administration were able to come to the United States. They were able to stay in the United States. Uh, they weren't born here, but somehow they got here and uh, it, they were studying. I forget the exact details of it right now. But anyway, uh, people tried to stop them. It's still kind of hung up in the courts. So I, I was I was teaching some of these kids. They were like teenagers and they couldn't understand. You know, they, they lived their entire lives in the United States. Now somebody wanted to throw them out to a country that, you know, they'd never really been to. You know, and I remember one kid, one little girl, she came in, she was she was crying. She said, Why are they doing this to us? Why are they doing this? So I, it touched me. I, I ended up doing a film about DACA students with my students there. So I've done some serious stuff. Um but the uh, this latest film is the first full-length documentary I've done. Okay. I noticed there were quite a few um, people associated with helping to to build the, the team. Do you have, like, a normal group of people that you work with, or do you pull together your team as you need it? I'm a, I'm a guerrilla filmmaker. I'm a one-man band. Oh, it's okay. Uh, I do almost everything myself only because of the financial limitations that I have. Um, I've had some wonderfully supportive people uh, that I've raised money for my, uh, for my work with crowdfunding, mm -hmm. people that I've met on Facebook and YouTube and other places uh, who've been generous. But when it comes to the actual production of the films, um, I do most of it myself, although I have gotten help, for example, a friend of mine is a great musician, Bob Mincer. He did the music for the film. Another friend of mine is an animator and a musician as well. Saul Rubin, he did the animation. Someone else did some graphics. But all the other stuff I did myself. 
And I've kind of reached the end of the line in terms of working that way. It's just too much to take on. <laughs> I'm only one man. So what about the, you know, there were a lot of, uh, there's a lot of information there, uh, historical perspectives. Um, did you do all of the research for that too? Or was there some place that, um, that has that available that helps that you could just go pull from? That's why it took three years to make the film. Mm. You know, okay. I started out, I said, you know, I was really pissed off after the synagogue massacre and like, I knew something about anti-Semitism, but I said, I got to learn more about it um, because I wasn't sure how I was going to tell the story. You know, in making, a, in writing a story, be it fiction or a documentary, you kind of have to zero in. What is the story and how am I going to tell it? Uh, so I needed to do a lot of research and that's what I did, uh, you know, for the first year and a half. Basically, I just did research. Uh, watched a lot of movies, talked to a lot of people. I ended up meeting a group of people here in Tucson who are Holocaust survivors. They were in the film at the end of the film. Sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got to tell you, there, there's nothing like, well, when you read about these, when you read about something like the Holocaust or you see a film, it's one thing. But when you sit across from someone and they're looking you in the eye and they're telling you these stories about, you know, what happened to them, it's just unbelievable. So wow. I, I I did all the research myself, step by step. So now, uh, um, for th for people who may be watching, uh, I'm not getting into the politics of the conflict in Israel between Israel and Palestine, because the focus of the the focus of the documentary was anti-Semitism in America. Correct. Exactly. So, so the only question that I'm actually going to ask about that is, do you find that the politics of uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict impact greatly um, anti-Semitism in the United States? Yes, because there are, there's a group of people who are not exactly pro-Israel to begin with, <coughs> And when the Israelis go after the Palestinians, that stirs people up. It does create more anti-Semitism. And I, I, you know, we've talked about this before. I am totally against everything the Israeli government is doing to the Palestinians. Um, it's just, it's horrible, especially from a group of people who suffered so much during the Holocaust to turn around and then go after a group of people like this. Now I know it's not easy being as an Israeli. The Arabs are, are against you. I mean, it's it's been one mess after another since 1948. But violence is not the answer. And and taking ordinary people, like just or, not soldiers, not government people, just ordinary people, and torturing them, putting them through what they these people are having to go through, it's 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 horrible. Now, hopefully. Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, who uh, was a good friend of Donald Trump, is no longer in office, and maybe the situation will change over there. I, um, <coughs> I am uh, in favor of what's called a two-state solution. That means Israel should be a country and Palestine should be a country as well. Uh, and the Israeli government has fought that, uh, but... But there are, are a lot of people who think that's the way that there can be peace by giving these people their their land and recognizing them and having them recognize Israel and building on that consensus from there. Trying to put everybody into the same country, it's not working. So um, uh, you know, there were a lot of things that you said there that, that I, I really wanted to, well, I could get into, but again, uh, we're, we're focusing on anti-Semitism in America versus uh, so, so I'm going to leave that out and, and address the Palestinian uh, Israeli situation at another time. Um, so, the, so there were some recent events that have spurred you. Do you have your own personal stories of uh, anti-Semitism that, that has impacted your life? 
Well, I once experienced anti-Semitism in a very intense way. I don't really talk about this often, but I'll share it with you today. Um, I was a freshman in college in April of, uh, I guess it was 68, when Martin Luther King was assassinated. And uh, I had been uh, on the front lines of some demonstrations during that era, anti-war demonstrations, civil rights demonstrations. Um, but I decided when that happened, Someone said, why don't you, you know, we're, we're doing a voter registration drive in Mississippi. A bunch of us were going to drive down there in a station wagon. Why don't, you know, why don't you come down there? You know, see what you could, okay. I'm like, you know, 18, 19 years old. Sure. So uh, I'd never been to Mississippi. So the first thing that hit me was Mississippi totally freaked me out. I mean, it, you know, when I grew up from Connecticut, there was always talk about the South. You know, mm -hmm. the South was like backward, a lot of racism. Man, when I went to Mississippi and I saw African-Americans walking down the street, kind of looking to the ground, looking ashamed. I mean, it just what is what this is the United States. What the fuck is going on here? You know, I felt it. Mm -hmm. But so I was there on a mission. So I was outside of Jackson, Mississippi. I forget the name of the town, some little town. I got lost. Uh, you know, we split up individually. We were going to canvas the neighborhood. I got lost. And um, I was, you know, walking around trying to figure out what's happened. All of a sudden, this is like a movie. These four, these three guys pulled up in a truck. Um for lack of a better expression, this was the word that was used at the time, rednecks. And uh, they came after me. You know, you know, you bastards, what are you doing down here, blah, blah, blah. And uh, you must be a fucking Jew. But they, st they started to beat me up. Okay. Uh, never got beaten up before. But not, I mean, not like John Lewis got beaten up. With a thing on my head, but you know, mm -hmm. hitting, me, hitting me with their fists, uh, a little bloody. So I'm laying there in the ditch. I'm like, you know, dazed. How am I going to get get out of here? And a police car pulls up. One of these sheriffs kind of reminds me of the movie In the Heat of the Night. Okay. Rod Steiger, racist sheriff. Rod Steiger was a great actor, by the way. And I'm, I, I love Sydney, Sydney Poitier, who passed a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Another tremendous actor in human being. So anyway, um, I'm in this ditch. This guy comes over to me. I think, oh, thank God, somebody's going to help me. The first thing he did, he kicks me in my legs. He kicks me in my stomach. My stomach. He, like, says some vile things to me. And then he says, last words are, get the fuck out of here. And then, you know, he left. Wow. And wow. then about 15 minutes later, my friends came who were looking for you. They found me. And uh, so I'm not sure if that was like anti-Semitic or just, you know, a racial thing. But certainly that's the one time in my life where I've experienced vi hate, violence uh, inspired hate. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. I in my adult life, uh, I've been around people who are anti-Semitic. Uh, they didn't know I was Jewish, and they they made comments in my presence that were clearly anti-Semitic. But it wasn't my it wasn't my place to say anything at that moment. But making this film was my place. That is my answer to the anti-Semites. That is my answer to the racists. That sounds like an experience right there. I, I had a question, though. Uh, I believe uh, you said in the documentary that both of your parents served in World War II. Is that correct? That is correct. How did that come about? Were they drafted? They volunteered? Oh, yeah. Well, my dad was drafted. My dad was 18 or 19 years old. Okay. My mom was not drafted, but she volunteered. There was a program for women in the Navy called the WACS, mm -hmm. W-A-C-S. Yeah. Women's Army. And she 
exactly. And she went to New York City and she worked in an office or something. She never saw any any any, uh, any conflict or anything like that. But she was in the Navy. My dad was in the Air Force. As fate would have it, my dad was a musician. He led a big band and he went to Europe and uh, he got into the USO and he actually did some tours with Bob Hope leading this big band. So they were not involved in any conflict, but you know, I was born in 1949. So I grew up, started to grow up in the fifties. World War II wasn't that far away and the Holocaust wasn't that far away. So right. my parents in a way would talk about it as if it was still happening. Did they talk about any uh, anti-Semitic experiences while in the military? They did not. Okay. They did not. And they themselves, I think, had uh, feelings about it, but I, I don't think they... The only anti-Semitic thing that happened to them, on their honeymoon in 1948, they drove up to this area called Cape Cod in Massachusetts. And in, uh, as I mentioned in the film, as you, as you probably know, um, in those days, checking into a hotel or a motel could be extremely difficult. Sure. Uh, now, in the African community, African-American community, there was something called the Green Book, that if you were, if you were African-American, you were traveling in the United States, you had to have this book to know where you could check into a motel, where you could eat. Such was the nature of racism in the United States up until the 1950s. Well, Jews experienced the same thing because up until the Civil Rights Act in 64, when you filled out a job application or a wedding license, or you applied to a school, or you checked into a hotel or a motel, you had to list your religion. Wow. So one of my parents tried to check into a motel in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and they filled out the reason they were Jewish. The guy said to him, sir, we don't allow Jews here. Mm. That upset them, of course. What happened was they went to two or three other places. It was the same. They ended up driving back in the middle of the night from Cape Cod back to Hartford, Connecticut, because they couldn't find a place to stay because they were Jews. Interesting. So how would you how would you assess the current status of Jews in the United States? That's a pretty big yeah. <laughs> I kind of left it kind of broad. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, there's a lot of anti-Semitism in the United States. There's no doubt about that. Um, and the internet is responsible, is clearly responsible for the rise of anti-Semitism because until the inter internet came along, all of these groups, these hate, these groups of hate, be them neo-Nazis or the KKK or whatever, they had no they had no way to reach a mass audience. They could, you know, if you signed up, they could send you a newsletter, or maybe, you know, some other people in the community knew when they would meet. Whatever, the internet comes along, it blows everything wide open. Anybody can post anything with no censorship, basically. And they can potentially reach anybody in the world. And because of the internet, more people uh, identify themselves in a very negative way. Like, I don't like Jews. I don't like black people because of the lies. What the internet does is it spreads lies through what are called MEMS, M-E-M-S, mm -hmm. and tropes, you know, these ideas, you know, ridiculous ideas. For example, um, you know, it's funny because I saw this, uh, Larry David on Curb Your Enthusiasm was making fun of this uh, in a show this year about uh, e uh, black people eating watermelon. You know, mm -hmm. there's, the, there's this idea, oh, black people love watermelon and fried chicken. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they do. I love watermelon and fried chicken too. Sure. But this idea that, you know, people have certain characteristics and the internet uh, help to further all the negative characteristics about Jews that have existed since the killing of Christ. Jews didn't kill Christ, the Romans did, but the church helped to perpetrate this. And then, oh, the Jews and money 
and the Jews killing children to use the blood in their ceremonies. Mm -hmm. And up to today, oh, the Jews started COVID. It's the Jews who are responsible for COVID, and they're the ones that are profiting from it. Yeah. So the state of Jews in the United States, a lot of hatred. Nevertheless, Jews have made an incredible contribution to our culture, our society, and continue to. Um, and uh, they will, you know, but this hatred thing, I don't know if it's going to bring down the United States, but it certainly crippled us at this moment. And it, it, the COVID situation is a good example of how we can no longer coalesce as a group of people anymore. And your program is about establishing a communication about people talking, about uh, seeing different sides of an issue. I'm hoping we can get beyond this period, but I just don't know what's going to happen. I really don't. So, yeah, it's a challenge for uh, for us coming together, being so divided, especially with the political divide right now. Everybody's so narrowly focused on certain issues that we got to see the big picture and, and figure out how we all are in this together and we have to fight a common enemy, which is hate anti-Semitism, racism, and all of that. Yeah. We, just, we just have to be more open-minded about it. Well, so, that's why I'm, I'm really trying to reach children, because I think that young people, their, their minds aren't closed yet. Right. And there's an opportunity to go in there and, and communicate. You know, sometimes um, I become friends with the Holocaust survivors that I work with, and they go out, these people are like 80, in their late 80s, early 90s. They go out to schools. You know, this is a largely uh, Latino community, Tucson, Arizona. Um, and uh, so we go out to like these Hispanic schools. And these kids, they have, may have read one or two lines or a chapter in a book about the Holocaust. But when a Holocaust survivor goes out there, and they get to interact with them on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Mm -hmm. um, it's just tremendous because they they get it immediately. They see what's happening, um, and that's that's something they're going to carry forth with themselves uh, in the future. Uh, that you know, one kid said, "My, you know, you changed my life completely. I didn't realize anything like this could ever happen." So, I think that my hope is with young people. I think that's where the future lies. And if they can get themselves out of their video games. <laughs> um, that's not an easy. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a difficult time. I mean, to be a teenager now can't be easy. Um, you know, with the, the school, everything that's happened in the schools in the past couple of years that screwed up learning. Um, no real leaders in our culture, no, nothing to look forward to, everything's so negative. But uh, I still have great hope for kids and for young people. So, yeah, yeah. so, one, one so, so I'll let you go, Leon. I just wanted uh, to ask this. When Chomsky said Jews killed Christ, that was just a quote, and that wasn't like his belief, was it? No. Okay. He's just going on the most, com that's the most common myth. Right. Because it was perpetrated by the church. It wasn't until 1967 that Pope, one of the popes said, no, that's not true. The Jews didn't kill Christ. For 2,000 years, that was what the church was broadcasting. The Jews kill Christ. They're different than us. Well, I think not that true. points out to interpretational flaws and in scriptures and things like that and what people want to twist it their, to their own beliefs, maybe. Yeah, I mean, if Jesus, if Jesus Christ, I'm assuming there was a Jesus Christ, if he came back today and he saw what happened, how people have taken, took what he did and twisted it around, and people who were, you know, the great comedian Lenny Bruce, he once did a routine about Christ and Moses coming back to New York City. And, uh, you know, he sees like, you know, the, the the priest in the uh, in St. Patrick's Cathedral, he's wearing a rig, a ring worth twenty five thousand dollars. And on the way to the church, they drive through Spanish Harlem and they see how people are poor and people are suffering. So, so I'm a great believer in faith, 
uh, I'm a spiritual man, but institutions always seem to like go in the wrong direction. Right. From my perspective. So do you, so there was a, so I have debated on how to ask this question Uh, because, because one way to ask the question implies something and then asking it a different way implies something else. So I'll do the best that I can. This is an attempt to um, get your understanding about uh, do Jews or have, have Jews success in America contributed to the perceptions that some groups have about Jews, such as um, the um, Fed is an organization that is not tied or um, controlled by the government. It has been, uh, it has had several Jewish uh, heads and then in 2008, there was the big um, financial blow up and there were several um, financial institutions operated, you know, at helmed by Jews. And, you know, everyone looks at how that all shook out um, and nobody didn't even get their hand slapped on that. Um, the, the, Film industry has their Jews have been rather successful in uh, the filming industry and and radio and television, and um, there have been numerous uh, attempts to tie some of the ills of society to um, the filming industry. So so the question then, I, as I was trying to ask, was, you know, have our Jews a victim of their own success. Well, there are a lot of there are successful Jews in 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 medicine and banking and show business. Um, are uh, some of them less than honest? And uh, well, you know, when I think of the banking industry, when I think of the financial structure of the United States. I think mostly, I don't care whether the people are Jews or whatever their beliefs are, their primary interest is money and power. And it doesn't matter you know, where they come from, that overrides everything. Um, so should people in, in relation to uh, uh, the last major financial crisis, 2008, should heads of relatives, should some people have been held responsible? Yes, they should have. And some of these uh, very rich, powerful people, be they Jews or whatever, can literally get away with just about everything. They can buy their way out of everything. I mean, look at uh, on the other side of the pond, Prince Andrew. You know, this woman accused him. She was a teenager. He, she, he sexually molested her or whatever. She spoke out. What do they do? Oh, here's $10 million. Do you think you can be quiet now? Yeah, she's going to be quiet for $10 million. So yeah. he has that money. He, he, it's like he can get away with this stuff. And you come to the United States, the people who control J.P. Morgan and uh, some people on the Fed and the banking industry, a lot of Jews on there. I, you know, I don't want to say they're crooks, but some of them are. I mean, that's just that's just the way it plays out. In terms of the movie business, I do think that uh, I am not in favor of censorship. I'm not going to tell somebody how to, you know, what movies to make, uh, what subjects to make. Um, and if somebody makes a, a movie that's that I am in total disagreement with, I'm just I'm not going to go see it. I'm not going to, you know, want to check it out. But I, I I'm in favor of people. Uh, uh, having the freedom to cover the subjects they want and let the marketplace decide whether or not they'll be successful. But at the same time, uh, I think that people who create something that's going to reach many, many people should keep in mind that there are different messages in these films that go out to people that you might not want to send to people. Um, we have, we have in the United States, 
especially the entertainment industry, we have been feasting on violence for decades and decades. How much violence is there in our culture as a result of what people saw on TV or in a movie that didn't necessarily make it okay, but just oh, people just do that. You know, I mean, it's just part of life. No, it's not part of life, but we've glorified violence in our media. Uh, we've uh, uh, created stereotypes. Um, I mean, how, what's the relationship of black culture to, to, to movies? You know, the stereotypes that have existed for so many years uh, portraying black people a certain way, so much so that in many cities, if a black person goes into a department store, an employee has to stand and watch over them because they're afraid, oh, they're going to steal something. They're black, look out. Because they saw that in a movie or a TV show or they heard it on a talk show and it perpetrated that myth. And those myths, those mems, those tropes affect all across our culture. Every kind, every everybody, black people, Jews, Hispanic people. Look at Asian people in the past couple of years because of COVID. Chinese people, Asian people are getting beaten up in this country because of you know the lies that are being perpetrated about Asian culture and this this hatred of China. Oh, China started uh, COVID. I don't know where it started. I don't know. I'd like to know. Maybe they started it. Maybe they didn't. But it came from there. You know, we got to hate China. So what goes back to my question? What is it about our species? Why are we so so uh, so negative about someone who's different from us in any way whatsoever? We're very suspicious. Are we trying to hold on to what we have? Are we lacking? Are we so lacking in self confidence? We can't let other people succeed. I don't know. I don't know the answer to these questions, Leon. Well, that's that's why we have the conversations. That's why sitting down with one another and being able to speak. Uh, you say something, I say something, I tell you what I heard you say, et cetera, et cetera. That's where we can start to become a, a better society, I think. Because we start to, when we start to listen to each other, we understand what the person is saying, what the person is feeling, how they are interacting with the world around them, uh, and then we can, you know, best put into place practices that makes everybody feel comfortable. So as I promised, I wasn't going to spend the whole time on the documentary. Um, so we're going to talk about your music um, documentaries. Um, so, so talk about what do you think is your, uh, do you have a prize gem in that, uh, um, work, that body of work? You know, it's kind of like asking which, which of my children do I love the most? I understand. <laughs> but, you know, but you know, there, there are children, uh, I'm not going to go there. Anyway, so which of which of your children do you want to highlight first? Well, well I think for me personally, because I grew up with the music, it, it was it had such a powerful impact on me when I was a teenager. And um, I mean, when I first came to New York, when I came to went to NYU and came to college and got to live in New York and hang out in jazz clubs all the time. You know, before I first got there, jazz musicians were like gods to me. And like I held them in such high regard. And then I got to New York and I found out they're just people, you know, mm -hmm. some of them are. I, I don't know if you've seen my video where I, I tell my Jimmy Smith story. No, I haven't seen it. Uh, the crazy story. I'm not. It's a little too long for right now. But um, so I learned to, to separate the the person, the creator, from the music, because some musicians aren't so nice. Most of them are, but still, some of them who I thought were gods just turned out to be mere people. So I say that because uh, when I was a young man, listening to the music and going to hear them live, and then cut to like 20 years later. I'm a jazz journalist. I get to meet a lot of these people. I get to like know them, become friends with them. And then 20 years after that, I start to do documentary films. So I'm I'm doing films about people that I've been listening to my entire life. 
people that you know I admire. For example, um, one of the first uh, jazz things I got into when I was a teenager was Dave Dave Brubeck, Take Five, mid '60s. I was very popular, and uh, I saw him in person. Came to my high school. It was fantastic. One of the first things I ever saw live. That was in '64. Cut to 1999, 35 years later, I produced uh, some of the first live webcasts. Uh, now it's very common, but back in 99, before broadband, it wasn't very common. But the, the company I was working with, we, would do, we were doing live webcasts from Birdland. And... Uh, we did two groups. One was the Saxophone Summit with Michael Brecker, Joe Lovano, and Dave Liebman. And the other one was the Dave Brubeck Quartet. So suddenly, here I am hanging out with Dave Brubeck, going to his house. This guy that when I was 14 years old and, and idolizing him, who, who would imagine that I would you know, be working with that? And that that's, whole, that's carried forth to other people. When I was a kid, I listened to Sonny Rollins all the time. I love Sonny Rollins. And then uh, 1978, when I was writing for Downbeat, they said, oh, why don't you go do an interview with Sonny Rollins? Wow. So I go to upstate New York. I get to get to know Sonny Rollins. We become friends. And then um, when uh, I started doing the jazz video guy thing in 2004, I was producing websites at that point. Mm -hmm. And I said to Sonny, I said, Geez, let me shoot some, let's do an interview on video. And that was the beginning of like literally hundreds of hours of video that I did with him uh, where he opened up and talked a lot about his life. And uh, so that will always be obviously special to me because this is someone that I looked up to, got to know him, work with him. Uh, and that was, you know, look back upon it. But there's a lot of other ones too. I mean, I was talking about Mississippi before. Mulgrew Miller, the late pianist who was from Mississippi, I got to know him as a writer, and then I did some some video with him, and he was just just an incredible person. I mean, uh, incredible musician, but a remarkable person as well. And that for me has been one of the great joys of of my work, uh, getting to know a lot of these musicians because a lot of them really are special, very unique people like Sun Ra, like Wayne Shorter, sitting down and having a conversation with these people, remarkable experience. Awesome. Uh, you know, we have a drummer, Ronnie Barrage on our crew and uh, he knows a lot of those guys. And I was wondering, you know, if he could get Sonny Rollins and he said, well, he was looking to it, but I, I'd love to have uh, Rollins come by. Well, Sonny got, Sonny had a, a respiratory problem. Oh, did he? May, may have been caused in 9-11. Uh, he lived two blocks from the World Trade Center. Oh, and okay. when the when the second tower went down, he went. He was living in the high rise. He went downstairs, and he breathed in all mm. that junk that was in the air sure. <laughs> after the towers went down. Wow, that was in two thousand one. 2013, he started to have respiratory problems, mm. uh, and uh, he can't play anymore. He had to stop yeah. playing, oh. and it was very, 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 very difficult for him. This is a guy who, since the age of 12, when he got his first saxophone, spent multiple hours every day by himself in a room practicing woodshedding. Suddenly, he can't do that anymore. Can't go out, can't play anymore. So wow. he is like kind of removed. He's always been like a kind of a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Recluse. Hermit. Away. <laughs> yeah. Recluse. But now he's like even more so. So he doesn't really do interviews. He can't. Yeah. I stopped shooting video with him. I mean, he's just, he's, he's like living out his final days. He's 92. He's going to be. So have you? Have, so are you now um, living in your own celebrity, or are you still, um, you know, working hard to to make a name for yourself? 
Well, I'm very lucky in that I've done something with the jazz video guy that has reached many, many people. Um, because, you know, when I first got online first time uh, at the beginning of the internet, it was December 1994. I said, even before video, even before audio, I said, I said to myself, this is going to be great for jazz because jazz is a global medium. This is going to be a good way for the, the community to come together. And it's, it's worked out that way in many ways. Um, I'm not going to get into the injustices of streaming and how musicians are ripped off by sites like Spotify that pay them, you know, a hundredth of a cent for every time their music is played, something like that. It's impossible for them to be compensated fairly. Sure. But then they people are learning about hundred million. They give Joe Rogan a hundred million for his show. Uh, actually, that's been no, updated that to two hundred million. Two hundred. Two hundred million. Yeah, he's giving. They give him two hundred million. Yeah. Unbelievable. But uh, so I'm very lucky in that you know a lot of people like what I do, mm-hmm. um, and this documentary uh, that I've just done is really the first time I've been able to stretch out uh, and deal with another subject. But um, it's difficult to break through uh, in terms of getting people to see your work, uh, yeah. to, to have that communication, because in the times we're living in, there is so much content. There are so many choices just for a film. There are platforms like like uh, Netflix and Amazon and all these different streaming channels and uh so the cost of production is much lower. You don't need sure. to have a million dollars to make a movie anymore. Right. So a lot of films out there, a lot of places to see them, very difficult to break through. So I appreciate the positive feedback I get, but I'm not driven. I don't need validation mm-hmm. and uh, I don't need to be rich. I'm just trying to do the work that I love to do. And I'm going to keep on doing it as long as I can. Very good. Tell people how to how to uh, follow you and see your work. Well, jazzvideoguide.com leads to my YouTube channel, which is Jazz Video Guy. I usually post three videos a week. Two would be like archival videos that I found from concerts in the past, mainly from Europe. And then I, I post another video each week that I produce on my own. I've been doing a, a series the past few months about Michael Brecker. It's called the Michael Brecker Podcast. But I do other things on there as well. I got a video I'm working on now that I'm coming up with called Why Isn't Jazz More Popular? Uh, that I hope will start a dialogue. Um, and then for my other stuff besides my jazz stuff, my portfolio page, <clears throat> excuse me, which is brettpremack.com, B-R-E-T-P-R-I-M-S-E-K, brettpremack.com is the gateway for my other work. Great. Thank you so very much for joining us today. Did you have a a last comment for Warren? Well, yeah, I just wanted to say thanks a lot for coming out and sharing with us, Brett. Uh, It's good to talk to you, not quite face-to-face, but close enough. And one day, hopefully, we could meet up and uh, share some uh, more experiences. And before I go, I'd like to just make a brief comment. Um, as far as personally, in the past, I may have said some things that were uh, offensive uh, or hateful. And um, I want to apologize if I've offended anyone, anyone that's Jewish, uh, LBTQ, uh, because, you know, I've changed, I've grown and I've, uh, expanded my, my point of view. And I see things a little bit differently now. And I will say that part of the problem with that we have in society somehow tends to evolve, evolve around religion. And I think we need to, uh, look into that. You know, it's, it's unfortunate, but that's what's happening in the world. People have different religious views and they cross over into everything else and it just gets out of proportion. All righty. Thank you very much, Brett. And we will look forward to possibly having you back. Thank you very much, Leanna. I love what you're doing 
and uh, anything I can do to help, I'm here. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I, here's what I'll say. I'll put in my, when you become super successful, don't forget us. <laughs> you mean when he becomes a millionaire? I, I didn't want to talk about I money. I said super successful. Don't change my words. <laughs> yeah, I think he's successful as it is. I mean, with with the work I said he's super done, successful. Yeah, super successful. Well, I, I think he's super successful. Very now, good. Well, thank you, Brett. We're gonna go ahead and take off. <laughs> All right, I gotta go, guys. That concludes this episode of Altitude Adjustment, and thank you for listening. This podcast is streamed live on YouTube and Twitch.tv and is designed for listener interaction. Visit the website, thelionsdenstl.wixsite.com forward slash home to join the discussion. The audio version of Altitude Adjustment is available where you get your podcasts, including Stitcher.com, the iTunes Store, and the Google Play Music Store, to name a few. Remember that the internet is powered by your likes, shares and comments so please like share and comment on this and other episodes of altitude adjustment because it matters and as always look out for the other guy because they may not be looking out for you